Some of you guys are already giving me the look. Yes, we are going to get through all 10 verses today. (laughs) There's a lot of overlap with the prior chapters here. So we're going to be able to focus on the big picture of this morning's text. Which And that big picture is one of Jesus' compassion and whom Jesus is having compassion on. We'll see as we dive into this morning's text. But Jesus has left the Tyre and Sidon region and is now beside the Sea of Galilee, as we pick up in verse 29. That says, And Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. The the parallel account of this reading this morning is in Mark chapter 7, verse 31, where Jesus says that they came into the region of the Decapolis for today's narrative. That's on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee in what is really Gentile territory, non-Jewish territory. So we're not fully back in to Israel yet after being in Tyre and Sidon last week. Um, However, this section used to be part of Israel. If you were to look in some of your maps in the back of some of your Bibles, this is a uh, part of what used to be the region of East Manasseh during the heyday of the kingdom of Israel. And maybe that's the reason Jesus came to this neck of the woods, because it used to be part of Israel. I really don't know for sure. I can only speculate. It's interesting to think about. What I do know for sure is that according to Matthew chapter 4, verse 25, people from the Decapolis region were there for the Sermon on the Mount. So um, it's these Gentiles that we're reading about, these people who are going to be responding to Jesus in this text, were somewhat familiar with Jesus and his ministry. Some of them had heard him speak before, others had heard of people speaking about Jesus speaking before. Word about him has gotten out through the region. In fact, even in the text, you know, it's, it even seems familiar, doesn't it, how he went up on the mountain and sat down. Kind of feels like something else we've read before. And since teachers were known to sit when they taught back in the first century rather than, you know, standing like I'm doing right now, No doubt there's some level of a teaching ministry Jesus has here that just isn't recorded. So, now if the prior encounter back in Matthew chapter 5 we called the Sermon on the Mount, I think a proper title for what takes place here is the Healing on the Mount. As verse 30 tells us, great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, and the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. (laughs) All of these miracles taking place in Gentile territory, away from the people of Israel, where you would have expected these types of miracles. I suppose one could say that more than just a few crumbs had fallen from the table, borrowing from what we read about last week. As we discussed then, all who come to Jesus were ministered to by him. Jew, Gentile, 
Tyre and Sidon or Bethlehem, it didn't matter to our Savior. John chapter 6 even says that all those who came to Jesus, he will by no means cast out. A very important point for us to remember. Furthermore, you know, I I find something beautifully poetic about how it says that they took these people, the line, the the, the blind, the mute, And they laid him, they put them at his feet. Something amazing happens when you take your problems, your ailments, whatever they are, and you lay them at Jesus' feet. Something seems to happen when we do that. (laughs) You know, I know many people who've had terrible medical conditions and all all kinds of difficult problems of all different kinds. And something happens when you lay your problem at Jesus' feet. Now, while we can't expect Jesus to heal us the same way that he did back then, every once in a while he does. Our God is not dead. Our God is living. Our God is active. He is alive. Jesus is risen after all. Good Friday was not the end of the story. Jesus has risen, and our God is alive today. There's nothing stopping God from being active in the world today as he was as we read the pages of Scripture. Now, we don't expect it the same way we expected Jesus comes to town and healed people. But I prefer to say Jesus does still heal 100% of the time, even today. Just not always in the timing that we see in the Gospels. Here's what I mean. Beethoven himself once famously said, despite his deafness, I will hear in heaven. And that gives us some perspective. Likewise, my back pain, my eye problems, and whatever your problems you have as we're sitting here together today, Those problems have an expiration date. Whatever you are ailed by today, Jesus, if you are a Christian this morning, if you believe the gospel, these promises are for you. Your healing is coming. I can assure you of that. So don't be discouraged. One day is coming where we're going to wake up without all kinds of aches and pains as we all get older and all kinds of other situations and medical conditions. One day we're going to look back on all of that as a distant memory. And that ought to get up, give us comfort as we wait for it in the meantime. And as the crowd wondered, how can these people be healed? How can the blind see? Only God can restore sight to the blind. And the crippled, the mute, in response to all of this, they glorified the God of Israel. That's the point to all of this. To make it clear in people's minds, only God could do this. And not the pagan gods that these people were worshiping prior. This is something unique. This is something that never happened before Jesus came to this region. Something about him, the God of Israel, is where this power comes from. And a prayer that we share, that's a prayer that we share here at this church, that people would look at our lives, that people would look at the things we value, people would look at the way we have been changed by the gospel, looking at the way this church operates and the things that this church prioritizes, and people would say, 
There's something about those Christians over on Broadway. Something about those Christians. Their God is living. Their God is active. Their God is the God I want to seek out. And I, I love that. <laughs> By the way, I find it fascinating that people glorified the God of Israel. It doesn't say Jesus, by the way, in this text. Did you guys notice that? That's very interesting to me. They glorified God as a whole, not just the fully God, fully man person who's working these miracles. And that's refreshing to me in in an interesting way because that is the true goal of ministry, to glorify God through what we do. To exalt God and not just one person, one movement, or one ministry. And I find that refreshing because, like, there's no other way to word it. You know, there's a troubling trend in the Protestant movement these days where there's the exaltation of the pastor or the worship leader or whoever is doing the frontward-facing ministry these days. People lifting them up on a pedestal and, goodness, in some cases, even calling them celebrities. Now, if the idea of a celebrity pastor sounds like an oxymoron to you, you're right. That ought not be so. But to many people's eyes, it is. Churches are built on a person's personality sometimes, where people are drawn out to hear a speaker, to hear a particular worship band, or whatever it is that they're drawn out to. And pastors themselves view themselves in competition with the guy down the street at the other church. But what did John the Baptist say about this? He said of his whole ministry, the one of whom Jesus said, there's no one greater than John the Baptist. He said that his whole ministry was to prepare the way for the one whose sandals he was not worthy to untie. That's the heart that churches need to have and need to foster. That, yes, absolutely the pastors need to embody and that everyone who worships God needs to be united in that as their vision. Recognizing our own brokenness without Christ And seeking to glorify him, not ourselves, not our movement, not our ways, but to glorify God. Needs to be the cry of all of our hearts. Jesus getting the glory. (laughs) Because otherwise, (laughs) anything less than that is like when we read the apostles arguing with one another, wondering, oh, who is the greatest? Who among us is going to be the greatest? Who's going to take over when Jesus is gone? You ever wonder how they could do that? Jesus is right there, and they're wondering who is the greatest when they're standing next to the greatest? Well, a a quick examination of our human hearts and the way churches still function today reveals we really haven't done much better, have we? But while ministering to these people, a problem they have experienced before shockingly seems to reemerge in verse 32. Where it says, and then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Now, first, can we just marvel that it's been three days 
without these guys having any food. And it's not like there's a local convenience store down the street in the middle of this region where they could get food from. It's a pretty deserted region that they were in. And yet, after the healing of the 5,000, even then, Jesus fed them after, at the end of one day. And it's been three now. This is one committed crowd. <laughs> Some people these days can't even sit through a one-hour worship service, much less three days. But there is a hunger for the things of God in these lost people. People willing to forgo these long sections of their whole week, much less their day, just out of a desire to spend time with Jesus, expecting something from him, expecting to meet with him. A mark of true revival is taking place amongst these pagans. And it brings to mind when Jesus quoted Deuteronomy, saying, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And I pray that is that could be said of each one of us this morning. That we too would pine for God and desire to meet with him with the same passion that our own human bodies crave food after it's been too long. That we would so too crave God in that capacity. And being surrounded by all these people who have now been willing to be with him, to hear his teaching, experience his miracles, Jesus sees no point in sending these people away only to have them faint along the way. It made no sense for Jesus to heal these people from this region who have been restored, somebody who'd never walked before or haven't walked in years, finally they're able to walk again and they die walking home in the wilderness because they haven't eaten in three days. Jesus saw no point in that and therefore has compassion on those people and desires to send them home both with full hearts, whole bodies, and full stomachs and does an amazing miracle to do so once again. But before we go there, let me take a moment to clarify something because far too many people give a straw man example of what Christian, Christians believe about this overarching topic of Jesus' compassion. So bear with me for a second. Christians care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. Christians care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering suffering. What I mean is that most Christians, although some of us have become desensitized to it, we see somebody starving on TV in one of those commercials, and our heart just goes out to them. We, those of you in school, will see, you know, some kid that goes to class with you guys showing up in the same set of clothes week after week, and your heart just cries out to them having compassion on them. We see people walking around on the streets with obviously all of their possessions with them. And we have compassion on them. Deeply caring about their struggle and suffering. But yet also, we have compassion on the wealthy businessman coming off of the train from his job on Wall Street who will suffer for eternity because, uh, because they trusted in their abundance and not God. 
They trusted in their own righteousness and not God's righteousness. They trusted in their stuff and not trusted in God. The Christian gospel calls us to have compassion on both of these individuals. Not either or. Because both are, have a struggle and a suffering. One present, one future. And we care about both as Christians. And just look at Jesus' own ministry. He had compassion on both. He's been healing and ministering to these people who are in terrible situations in the prior paragraph. But what did he also say about the rich young ruler? It says that Jesus loved him. He loved the guy. And mentioned, pointed out that he lacked only one thing. The only thing that matters, a love for God with all of his heart more than his stuff. Calling him to get his riches out of the way because it had become an idol, not because he was rich, but because his riches had become an idol. So because both are true, this week we are both going to distribute, what, something like a thousand bags of food from downstairs? to help people ministering to those needs. And yet also, we'll be setting up a table for the parade next week, passing out gospel tracts to tell people about the good news that we have in Jesus Christ, to avoid future suffering. Because we care about both this week. We're going to do both this week. Because both styles of ministry are looking to alleviate suffering and come from the same heart. And frankly, for this reason, a lot of so-called compassion ministries miss the mark. Because they succeed in caring for a man's stomach, but they don't always care for a man's soul. We must do both, as Jesus did both. Jesus didn't just feed them, but he healed them and taught them and gave them the truth. And since we can't heal on command, we got to excel in the other things. The disciples then have a response in verse 33 that might have surprised us. Where it says, the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven, and a few small fish. That surprised me to read that. Maybe it did to some of you guys. Why are the disciples acting like the feeding of the 5,000 didn't happen just a chapter ago? It's a little surprising. And there's a bunch of explanations for this, and you get one list of explanations from the critics and the skeptics, but I personally believe that that the disciples just didn't expect this miracle to be done again to a Gentile crowd. Remember, these are... Jesus' disciples were, these are Jewish men. They didn't, look, they didn't look so nicely upon the Gentiles. Saw them as beneath them. These were the people who, when they traveled back into Israel from Gentile territories, would shake off the dust of their feet because they walked through land that wasn't worthy of their feet. They didn't want a stench of anything from Gentile territory, not even a grain of sand coming back in with them. So that's their mentality. And they're like, oh, surely that's not going to happen again. Surely they can't be what Jesus is going to do out here. He's not going to care for these people the way he cared for us Israelites. 
After all, these pagans are going to miss all the symbolism. There's no way they're going to make the connection, the tie-in to what Moses did in the wilderness. How he rained down bread from heaven and people ate the manna in the wilderness and were sustained in those times. They're going to miss that symbolism. Jesus isn't going to do that here. Well, first of all, it wasn't Moses who did that. It was God. And Jesus had to correct them later on about that whole point. And yes, they're going to miss that tie-in. But even then, even then, they're missing some of the symbolism of what Jesus is going to be doing. As he broke the bread, notice in this chapter, in the last chapter, and way ahead in Matthew 26, 26, it's the same pattern. Jesus blessed the bread and broke it and distributed it. Sounds like something else we still do about once a month, don't we? Some of that symbolism was very much not lost on the Gentiles after all, and very much was missed by the Jews. But he does, either way, Jesus does this miracle for them anyway. As we see again in verse 35, I got a little bit ahead of myself there. It says, and directing the crowd, he sit down, they sat down on the crowd, and he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And when they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over, and those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, they got, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Now for anyone still wondering, you know, why... You know, what's going on? Is this the same passage? Is, is the 4,000 and the 5,000 the same thing, just told differently? There are so many differences between these two that you don't notice at first glance. But one is in the Gentile Decapolis. The other is in the Galilean Israel side. There's a different number of people, 5,000 men and 4,000 men. There's different source materials. You have five loaves and two fish versus seven loaves and a few fish. The crowd was hungry after one day. Last chapter, and they're hungry after three days in this chapter. In one narrative, they're sitting on the grass, in this case, the dry ground. And 12 small baskets versus seven large baskets is, are the leftovers. And this isn't obvious in our English translations, but there's a huge difference here. The, the Israelites had 12 small, like personal size baskets, but these these that we see in this chapter, the seven large baskets are huge. They're, they're closer to hampers in terms of their size. In fact, they, it, this was so large enough that they were able to fit a whole person into one of these baskets in Acts chapter 9. They had to lower Paul down from one to get out of uh, Damascus. And then finally afterwards, they're going to Gennesaret instead of Magadan. So a lot of differences between these two. And they're important differences, and it's important to understand that these are two different incidents because they're referenced in the next chapter together. But here's the important thing. As we see these two different narratives of Jesus going to the Gentiles and going to the Israelites, doing a similar miracle in each circumstance, we see it together, we see a window 
of what heaven is going to be like and what God's church is called to be like on this side of eternity. A mix of both Jews and Gentiles. Both welcomed into the kingdom of God. Both breaking bread with Jesus. And Jesus showing no difference on whom he would give his compassion. But giving it to whoever would come to him. And rather than the Gentiles needing to come to Israel and become Jews, the Messiah went to them and had compassion on them and healed them, fed them, and no doubt through Jesus' teaching, saved some through his teaching, through the word of the gospel. <laughs> and it's, it's worth noting that disciples would continue to struggle with this for a while. They couldn't make sense out of what they had seen here. In fact, as late as Acts chapter 10, the apostles were shocked when the Holy Spirit fell upon the Gentiles in Caesarea the same way the Holy Spirit fell upon the Jews in Israel and in Jerusalem during Pentecost. And they're like, how how can this be? The Holy Spirit's not showing any kind of preference or difference between the Jews and the Gentiles. How can this be? And I can't help but to wonder if Peter who was present, looked back at this incident here and started to make connections. Huh, Jesus always showed compassion to everyone. He fed and healed the Israelites and he fed and healed the Gentiles. Interesting. Making connections that maybe some of the kingdom and some of the people in the kingdom of God are going to be the last people we would expect. Right? Think about it. Who is the person you'd least expect to be part of the kingdom of heaven? I mean, to tell you my own personal experience, you know, the person I would have answered that question about back in high school is now a brother in the Lord. The last person I would have expected responded to the good news. Who is that to you? Who can you reach out to in response to the compassion Jesus has shown the unexpected? Some burdens are physical, some are spiritual. But through the gospel, we are able to care and minister to both. Frankly, Jesus is taking care of the root cause of both kinds of suffering. You know, there would be no physical or eternal suffering without sin, according to Genesis chapter 3. It's it's an easier question to answer than we realize when people ask, why is there evil, suffering, hunger, and pain in this world? I can answer you the question in one word, sin. Why is it here? We sinned. We rebelled against God and all kinds of horrible things in this world are a direct or indirect result of sin. All right, so what's the solution? That's the trick. There is no earthly solution. You put it into the hands of man to eradicate human suffering, human poverty, uh, suffering of all different kinds, It's not going to work because any government or group that is strong enough to eradicate human suffering will inevitably be the cause of it. 
That's just human nature. We're corrupt, we're sinful. We need to understand that. That is our anthropology. But the eternal solution is to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, who saw your fateful end, who saw our separation from him and had compassion on us and who died on the cross to pay for the full the full price to remove the curse of sin so that whoever believes in him shall not perish in our suffering but one day be completely free from our suffering from all of our sin from all of our sickness through all of our pain and whatever our suffering looks like the same god who came and in his compassion temporarily removed uh, suffering, who removed um, pain and sickness and all of that from, from the whole region of Palestine in the first century, so likewise had compassion on you and paid the price so that the whole world could be free of all of these things one day. Perhaps not yet, but one day. So in conclusion, the words of a favorite hymn seem to do the job. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look at his beautiful face. And the things of earth, including all of our sufferings and difficulties, will grow strangely dim and revealed for the temporary problems that they really are in light of his glory and grace. Thanks be to God. Amen.